Listener Production. So Australia's second biggest church has split in two over guess which issue. Same-sex marriage. This issue constantly divides Christians, including the Anglican Church. And last week, we learned that a so-called rebel conservative cult has broken away. Anglicans like to talk to each other. We like to be in communion with each other. And this split was not something I think anybody wanted. So how much damage will this split do to the church that has 3 million followers in Australia? And why does anything to do with homosexuality continually tear Christians apart? from each other and society. That is our briefing. First, today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It's Wednesday, the 24th of August. And Antoinette, you've just come back from Vietnam. How was that? Oh, amazing and so warm. But I've come back to Australia hoping that winter's over and it's not. It's it's freezing. There's like a polar vortex <laughs> moving up the East Coast. I, th- I think there was a 20 degree drop uh, when I got off the plane. So yeah, big smack in the face, return to reality. All right, speaking of reality, let's hit the headlines. Scott Morrison fundamentally undermined the principles of responsible government. That's according to the Solicitor General, whose advice was released yesterday. Scott Morrison owes the Australian people an apology for undermining our parliamentary democracy, something that can't be taken for granted. That's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. So the Solicitor General's advice, and he's the government's chief lawyer, also said the appointments were legal and the Governor-General could not refuse to accept the Prime Minister's advice in relation to the appointments, nor is there any requirement for transparency from the Governor-General. In his response, Anthony Albanese also said there's going to be actually another broader inquiry into this. Why this occurred, how it occurred, who knew about it occurring. He'll also ensure all ministerial appointments are published from now on. And Scott Morrison has responded in a statement saying that the ministerial authorities were not misused and that some of these decisions will be reflected upon now and lessons learned. Yeah, Scott Morrison also said that if there is an inquiry, it should also look at the decisions of state and territory governments during the pandemic. But this is spin from Scott Morrison. He's talking about a broader inquiry into the handling of the pandemic. That is not what Anthony Albanese is talking about. He's talking about an inquiry into Scott Morrison's secret ministries. So what Scott Morrison's trying to do is still suggest, still trying Mm -hmm. to push this line that all of these secret appointments were all about the pandemic. And that explanation only stacks up at best, maybe for two out of the five appointments and does nothing to explain the secrecy around them. Yeah, and Tom, I'm not sure that anybody buys that spin anymore, given he's now got a pretty well and, you know, well-proven track record of having a tenuous at best relationship with the truth. If this is about a pandemic response, you know, he failed to secure vaccines in time and deliver on his promise. And maybe, just maybe, if the pandemic response was brilliant and all the ministries were in relation to the pandemic, People would buy the secret ministries, but, you know, it was far from that. And I think the real inquiry now is about whether this should be legal um, and whether it should be able to happen again in the future. And John Farnham is in a stable condition after a marathon 12-hour cancer surgery, which finished at 7.30 last night. We had lunch here at our place about three weeks ago with he and Jill and Gaynor Wheatley, and it, it was it was lovely. Everyone was in great spirits. No indication, and in fact, I don't 
I don't think he knew. That's bandmate Lindsay Field on Channel 10 there. And it has been a tough year for the singer. Farnham's long-term manager and friend, Glenn Wheatley, died earlier this year from complications related to COVID-19. And, and Tom, you know Farnsey. Yeah, well, I played a few gigs with him, got to meet Glenn Wheatley as well, his manager, and John, we did a... Uh, Uh, two days of rehearsals and then we played three shows together. So he was just incredible. He was so friendly and so generous on stage. Um, That was with Client Liaison. It was just an incredible moment in all of our lives. And we also got to know John's son, um, James, who's still so close to his dad. So um, really feeling for John and the rest of the family. And Farnham was also close friends with Olivia Newton-John, who, of course, died earlier this month. And I'm glad the surgery went well. And I'm not sure, uh, Tom, that Australia could deal with another national darling Mm. departing. Um, So many of us are still reeling from the loss of Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, and Judith Durham and Archie Roach. So it's been a tough time. The tennis fan that Nick Kyrgios accused of having 700 drinks during his Wimbledon final defeat is now suing for defamation. Yeah, so you might remember this moment from the final. Kyrgios accused this woman of being drunk and distracting him and she was removed from the Senate court after this outburst. And it turns out Anna Pallas, um, the woman, is a lawyer. And so she denies the claim that she was drunk and had 700 drinks, as he claimed, and she's now launched legal action to clear her name. Wow. Come on, move on. You know, this is a story that keeps on giving. At first, it was a little bit funny. Um, There are a whole bunch of memes about 700 drinks. And the lawyer, Anna, she claims not to be litigious. Hmm. Um, But I mean, um, most lawyers are. But she says that this false allegation about her was... In fairness, it was broadcast to or read by millions around the world, causing her distress um, and substantial damage. So, you know, we know defamation is a long and often lengthy, costly process. So, yeah, watch this space. Well, you know, it's like either she was yelling out because she was drunk or she was yelling out, you know, sober. I don't know which is worse. Yeah, good point. And Andrew Tate, a man known on social media for his extremely misogynistic views, has been kicked off Instagram, Facebook, TikTok and YouTube. So the 35-year-old shot to online fame in recent months and videos tagged hashtag Andrew Tate have racked up more than 12 billion views. And last month, he generated more Google searches than Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian combined. Yeah, so it's all coming to a crashing halt now. Um, He had a company called Hustlers University where if you promote the business on social media, you got a discount. So that was part of what drove all that online traffic to him. But that's coming apart as well. So he's been deplatformed and the Hustlers University affiliate marketing program has been shut down as well. And you don't know, Tom, this one, this story really irks me because I'd actually never heard of him until all the media coverage about how awful he is. And sure, I'm probably not his target market, but I do wonder, there's this like, the media has like a real responsibility, like we should interrogate hate and bigotry, but sometimes we fan it and sometimes we we allow for more popularity. Um, And then when when someone does get deplatformed, it runs the risk of sending their fans and people who don't feel heard underlined or more extreme. I'm just not sure the right way forward. Yeah, I I get the point you're making. It is tricky. Um, We even had a discussion here at the briefing about do we do a story on him? Mm. And so far we hadn't. But I think in this case, all this attention he's been getting from the media, and a lot of it is really critical, is actually what's led to him being deplatformed. And so once you are off these massive platforms, it really does restrict your audience. So I think ultimately 
the coverage has been a good thing. Yeah, and I think deplatforming and the bans are effective. It just depends. Is it permanent? Will it be back in six months? Like we know it, it helped with, uh, with Trump and the disinformation and he's still gone. But, you know, are people banned forever? All right. Katrina Blouse is about to join me as we take a look at the big split in the Anglican Church. All right, now to our briefing on the split in the Anglican Church over same-sex marriage. And for this briefing, I'm joined by Katrina Blowers. Yeah, so Tom, I guess this is a church that scored huge kudos for its progressive stance on the ordination of women 30 years ago now. And women clergy now make up more than a quarter of priests in the Anglican Church. But the issue of same-sex marriage, it's still an unsolvable divide. Yeah, it still tears Christians apart, and this is a big example of that. Last week, news broke that the Anglican Church's former Archbishop of Sydney had formed a breakaway congregation called the Diocese of the Southern Cross. They're meeting at RSL clubs, and they say they're fighting back against what they call a revisionist and progressive interpretation of the Bible. So they're joining this bigger global breakaway movement called GAFCON, and that goes to show that this issue is actually dividing Anglicans all around the world. So the question we're asking in this briefing is, why does anything to do with homosexuality still tear Christians apart? Renee Barker is an active member of the Anglican Church. She's also an academic who specialises in law and religion, and she grew up as the daughter of an Anglican priest. Renee, thanks for joining us. It's been five years since the gay marriage vote in Australia, and I would have thought that if there was going to be a split in the church in Australia, it might have happened by now. So why has this split happened now? Well... We've had to wait largely because of COVID for the church to actually have a conversation about this issue. So the Anglican Church operates as uh, 23 independent dioceses in Australia, but once every about three years, they get together in a, a large formal meeting. It's kind of like a parliament. We call it a general synod. And they get together to discuss matters of church law, uh, church doctrine, church policy, and things like that. And that happens about once every three years. But because of COVID, COVID and a number of other factors, that meeting got delayed by two years. So it was meant to happen two years ago. Um, and that ha- was supposed to be the first time we we're going to meet after the legalisation of same-sex marriage. And the church came together and had this meeting. And one of many things that were on the agenda was the church's approach going forward to human sexuality. And the church has confirmed that legally within the Anglican church, marriage remains between a man and a woman, but also up for debate and discussion was the question of the welcoming of LGBTI people into the church, uh, the role of people who might be LGBTI in leadership roles, but also perhaps more specifically the question of once a same-sex marriage has taken place in a civil setting, so for the celebrant, can a Anglican priest bless that union, so perform a blessing ceremony? And there had been a, a recent decision of one of the church courts, our appellate tribunal in the Anglican church, that had said that, yes, according to Anglican, church law as it existed at that time, a priest could perform, if they had an appropriate form of service, a blessing of a same-sex couple. Now, some as parts of the church were very distressed by this as felt it was against Christian teaching and Christian doctrine. And so that was up for discussion and debate at this general synod a few months ago. 
So that vote on that question failed, meaning that we have a position within the Anglican Church where under Anglican Church law, a priest cannot conduct a same-sex marriage. Marriages are between a man and a woman, but a priest can choose, if their diocese allows it, to conduct a blessing of a same-sex couple after they've had their their civil marriage, for example. So you've now got this interesting tension within the church with some sides within the church saying, no, that's completely inappropriate. That is completely inconsistent with our reading of scripture and God's directions on human sexuality. And on the other side, you have those who say, actually, no, this is consistent with their reading of scripture um, and on God's directions in relation particularly to love one another and to love each other. And then there's a third group within the church who are in the middle who sort of go, well, we don't agree with same-sex unions, but we also don't think this is a matter to split over. And as a result of the outcome, many who take a more traditional, some would say um, restrictive view of marriage as just between a man and a woman and human sexuality as just between a man and a woman, then they have become quite distressed that aspects of the church or parts of the church are no longer following what they believe is essential to Christian doctrine. So it appears that what they landed on was still a pretty conservative position overall. What did that group of people say who have broken away from the church? What what have they said that they've found so offensive? So the group who have have left, they've set up a separate sort of what they've called a parallel Anglican organisation. Their wording was that they would uh, encourage Anglicans who can, and this is their words, no longer accept the authority of their bishop. And I think where they find so offensive is they would articulate that homosexuality or homosexual practice of same-sex relationships and particularly sexual same-sex relationships are a sin and that the blessing of a sin is completely unacceptable and is not something that can be simply a point of difference between uh, the groups within the church. So this is a huge matter of doctrinal distance from their perspective and therefore a matter from which they feel uh, you have to make a choice. You can't be inside the Anglican church if the Anglican church is going to be blessing same-sex unions in any form or accepting people in partnered same-sex relationships in positions of leadership and authority. Why is it, do you think, that this issue is causing so many problems for Christians all around the world? I mean, it's not just in the Anglican Church, it's in lots of different denominations. It's also causing massive problems in the way the Christian world is fitting with the rest of secular society. I mean, just look recently at the the Manly Seagulls jersey saga or the Israel Folau saga. What is going on? Why does homosexuality and same-sex marriage cause so much division within Christianity. Christianity, I think, has two issues. Christianity is still the majority religion in Australia, but only just. Anglicans make up just 9.8% of the population, and only two or three generations ago, they would have made up you know, nearly 50%. So they're losing that position of dominance, and that is putting them in a really new position. They no longer have a situation where the laws automatically reflect their positions on issues of ethics and morals. And so they're having to contend for the first time with laws and community expectations that don't match their religious belief. When you then couple that with the nature of these religious beliefs, many of which have been held for centuries and longer, and to suddenly have those 
expectations change. So, well, but our and their positions, but our position hasn't changed, and our position is long-standing and based on their religious belief and practice that has a very long pedigree, been going back hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And so you've got this situation where those who have religious belief in this area have a very strong belief that they struggle to articulate in secular terms because it is religious, not secular. And they see that as more important than secular arguments of inclusion, being more progressive and moving moving with the times, moving with community. They would argue, in fact, the role of religion is to not move with the times and not move with the community, but to be a bulwark against incorrect choices of the community as they would see it. So it's become this tension point. But I think the reason the tension is happening now is because for the first time in the Western world, Christianity is not the dominant force it has been for so, so long. And so this is the first time we're seeing a tension between Christianity and expectations of the society and the law for other religions who've operated in the Western context. So, for example, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, they have lived with this tension as minority faiths already. They already know how to deal with these issues because they've had to do it for a long time where their religious beliefs and practices are out of step with law and community expectations. So Mm. I don't know necessarily it is LGBTI issues as such that are the cause, but rather the timing of this particular societal change in terms of both law and community expectations of inclusion and diversity. Let's drill down a little bit into how all this is going to work. The new conservative diocese of the Southern Cross was formally launched last week. How many members do you reckon are going to join? And also, in terms of the nuts and bolts of it, this diocese is no longer going to be in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, but a new conservative alliance called the Global Anglican Future Conference. So how does that Australian split fit with what's happening around the world? It's a good question how many will join, and it's look, that's really unclear at this stage. Um, they will not form part of the Australian Anglican Church, so the, the General Synod I spoke about earlier, they won't have representation there. Uh, their bishop won't be invited to meetings of all the bishops that take place uh, semi-regularly to discuss issues of the Anglican Church. They won't have representatives on the many uh, church bodies that help make the Anglican Church function in Australia. But they won't be the first organisation, religious organisation calling themselves using the word Anglican and having uh, aspects of their practice and their liturgy that is Anglican in nature. So they'll be legally in Australian context, a separate entity, uh, not part of the Anglican Church. They're not formally part of the Anglican Communion, but they will probably still have some connection with those who are part of the Anglican Communion through these other international organisations that sort of sit alongside or from the Anglican Communion and seek to represent aspects of the Anglican Communion, uh, particularly the more conservative aspects of the Anglican Communion. So, Renee, one final question. Um, You've given a very good, almost impartial sounding explanation of what's been happening here in, in your church, but you've grown up in it. Your dad's a priest. How do you feel about it? I've heard one academic saying that this new group are fundamentalists, which is a pretty strong word to be throwing around. How divisive is this? And are you feeling any pain from this? What are your thoughts personally? 
Yeah, so obviously I'm an Anglican and I make no secret of that. And my father was a priest. And for me, this is distressing because I have friends on both sides of this debate and colleagues on both sides of this debate. You know, and as I met very recently at General Synod with many of them, and we shared a communion together, um, formerly ritual services, and we shared coffee and, and meals together. And now we're pitted against each other. And one thing Anglicans have been good at for so long is being together in difference, to talking to one another, debating. And you asked me right at the top, why has this taken five years? And one of the reasons is because Anglicans like to talk to each other. We like to be in communion with each other. And this split was not something I think anybody wanted. And so we tried very hard to have those conversations. And so the fact that that has apparently failed is going to cause distress to people from all positions within the church and probably for some time. That was Renee Barker, who is an Anglican, as you just heard, and a researcher at the University of Western Australia, a lecturer in law. Wow, what an interesting conversation. I think that was great context she gave about the way society has changed around the Christian movement. And so this issue around the rights of gay people um, and same-sex marriage really brought that to the fore seems to be, Mm. I guess, one of the last issues they're sort of trying to hold a stake in the ground on for, I guess, a more biblical, you know, a literal biblical approach to living. And that's just causing them so much consternation. Yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, they this breakaway diocese, not really officially part of the Anglican Church, yet still allowed to use the word Anglican when it comes to referencing themselves. But if they're sort of teaching fundamentally different things on certain issues, you've got to wonder going forward whether they can still be under that same umbrella, because it's going to be very confusing for people to identify who stands where. Well... The kind of ridiculous thing is actually they'll be teaching a lot of the same things. It's actually only a very tiny thing that separates them. I think what will determine whether this gets any steam is, I guess, how much they feel part of this bigger global movement. Because if they are really ostracised from the mainstream Anglican community in Australia, I think that'll take away a lot of the benefit that people get out of actually being an Anglican, you know, that connection to other Anglicans. So maybe it won't last that long. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're looking at the Bali bombing 20 years on. What have been the shockwaves that have lasted until now? Listener.